I'll be reading from Genesis 41, starting in verse 38. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people and all my people shall order themselves at your command. Only as regards to the throne, I will be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, bow the knee, Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in the land of Egypt. May God bless the reading of his infallible word. Amen. Thank you, Matt, for that Old Testament reading. It corresponds to what we've been moving through in the book of Philemon, because um, we are we're not exactly talking about slavery, we're talking about reconciliation in the context of the life of Philemon, who was a leader in the first century church in Colossae, and his slave Onesimus, and they were estranged. And Matt's reading was from Genesis, the story of Joseph, who himself was sold into slavery. So let's read our passage this morning for our sermon, which is Philemon verses eight through 16. This is the word of God. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this is perhaps why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bond servant but more than a bond servant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Father, we pray that you would now come into our hearts and our minds and open up our understanding through the illumination of the Holy Spirit, that we might be helped by this explosive letter that Paul wrote to Philemon a leader in the church, and a slave owner. Help us and give us understanding that we might rightly discern what is true and right and be transformed by your truth. Sanctify us this morning as we hear the word of God preached. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this is part two of a three-part series in the book of Philemon. And last week, really was an introduction about 
the background of Philemon and the first century context in which it was written. And one of the things we established is that the, one of the big differences between slavery in the ancient world and slavery today is slavery today is very unambiguous. When you mention the word slavery, us modern people in the 21st century, we think of the Atlantic slave trade. There's very little ambiguity. What a slave is, is very clear. But in the ancient world, the word slavery and the idea of slavery was very imprecise. There was a host of meanings and a range and spectrum of what a slave was. There were bond servants, there were people who had debts and sold themselves into sort of slavery labor for a time to pay off a debt. There were people who couldn't provide for themselves. They had no means of living, and so they became slaves willingly so that they could have a better life, food and shelter, under someone who had more means than them. And then there were people who were born into slavery. And I mentioned those distinctions not to diminish slavery in the ancient world, because as Scott McKnight a New Testament scholar says in his commentary on Philemon that all of those things notwithstanding, at the end of the day, a slave was a slave. And one of the things I didn't get into last week is who was Onesimus? We talked about Paul, we talked about Philemon, but I did not talk a whole lot about who Onesimus was, the nature of his offense, why he was on the run, and his conversion, and who he became afterward. Well, Onesimus was a common name in antiquity, especially for slaves. And by now, you probably know that the name Onesimus means useful or profitable or beneficial. Now, our names today, we pick names because of the way they sound, maybe how original they are. But for centuries, people chose names based on their meaning in hopes that that person would live out the meaning of their name. Onesimus was not a believer before his encounter with Paul, and we're not sure really how Onesimus came to be Philemon's slave. You know, people were often born into slavery, so he, had, he could have been the child of another of Philemon's female slaves. As to his offense, there are a few theories out there about why he was estranged from his master, one is that he either stole money from Philemon or mismanaged his property in the way that was materially injurious to him. If he ran away, he likely stole or pilfered Philemon's property because it wouldn't really matter at that point. If you were on the run, the consequences were going to be severe, severe if you got caught, so why not take what you need for the journey? As I mentioned last week, Onesimus either ended up in jail or found himself around people who knew Paul and sought mediation from the apostle. You might be wondering why Onesimus, if he left the bondage of slavery in Philemon, his master's home, why couldn't he just start a new life? Seems to make sense for us modern people where our culture today is defined by self-determination and individualism, where we have upward mobility and movement, and even if you're poor, you can move to a new city and get a new job and kind of start over. But in the ancient world, it wasn't like that. 
In the ancient world, slavery was so ubiquitous that if you went to a new village or a new city, you had to prove you weren't a slave because slaves were often marked. They had some type of branding revealing who they were. And so the first question to Onesimus would have been, where is your master? Now, I don't know if I got into this last week, but in the ancient world, slavery was not defined by race. That was one of the biggest difference between ancient slavery and modern slavery. Slavery was usually um, a result of class. Uh, slaves were often captured um, as spoils of war. And once someone became a slave, it was hard for them and their descendants to be free. But it was ubiquitous. It was everywhere in the ancient world. Um, another thing that made it hard was that slaves often had, runaway slaves often have a bounty from their owner. And so someone may have realized that Onesimus was a runaway and threw him into prison until his master could be located for the reward money. And when he meets Paul, however he meets Paul, whether he's thrown into the same jail as Paul, and Paul, little background on the Apostle Paul, he's in prison for preaching the gospel. So if you think about who Paul is, he's a leader in the church in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. There's all these churches all over the area. And Paul, as he goes into each new vicinity or municipality, he's preaching the gospel and often finds himself, you know, on the bad side of the law because he is challenging the status quo of the paganism of those places, the sort of idolatry that exists, the immorality that exists, that the gospel is bringing this message that challenges the status quo, and that's exactly what Philemon is all about. The book of Philemon is challenging the status quo at the time, which is, if, if I have means, I'm up here, and if you have no means, you're down here. And if I'm an owner and you're a slave, I'm, I'm better than you. I'm more than you. I'm more important than you. And that is a status quo that even Christians in the first century fell into because it was the only world they knew. Now, we might look back and sort of tisk tisk wag our finger and judge those ancient Christians because at this time, you have to remember that the faith was very young. The church had just been born. We're talking about maybe only 20 years after Jesus' life. So the convictions of the gospel and the assumptions, the moral assumptions about what is good and bad and right and wrong and how the gospel redefines what it means to be human that we take for granted for those pagans who were converting to Christianity, these were new things for them. They were discovering new ideas about what it means to be human, which is redefined by love. Not hierarchy, not class, not socioeconomic status, none of those things. The entire world in Christ is reformulated, recreated around love, and this is why we're called new creations. Because what Christ does in the gospel, in his person and working in his ministry, is launches the new creation. New creation hasn't arrived fully yet, but it is inaugurated in the life and ministry of Jesus, and human relationships are redefined. This letter was explosive 
in the first century for that reason. Because it challenged the status quo in the ancient world, which revolved around those hierarchies. So when Onesimus meets Paul, the connection to Colossae and their mutual connection to Philemon is established. Paul hears of Onesimus' dire circumstances and tells him about how God came to be a servant, a slave for humanity in the person of Christ. Onesimus believes, and he's converted and becomes a disciple and a helper to Paul. And Onesimus could have been the inspiration for what Paul writes here in Galatians 3.28. Look on the screen. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I don't think Paul is starry-eyed about the realities of the world he lives in. He knows there is actually a huge difference between Jew and Greek and male and female and slave and free. But in Christ, something happens because love is operative. And when love is operative, it becomes the more motivating force behind all Christian relationships. And over a time, it spills out into all of your relationships. Maribel and I, the other day, we had not been out for sushi in a long time, and we said, let's get sushi, and the kids were doing something else, and sushi's one of those things where you say, you know, just don't tell them where we're going, because, you know, it's like, sushi's expensive, but, you know, you enjoy sushi, and they're saying, why didn't you take me? So we went to St. Charles, and we got some sushi, and from start to finish, the experience was very, very bad. The, the floor was covered in, like, some type of slippery wax, there was no one else in the restaurant except another table. They had already been served, and we waited 35 minutes for four sushi rolls. And about 13 minutes in, I was starting to get hot. Now, I'm not one of those people who complains. I never write bad reviews on Yelp or anything like that. You know, if I've got a fork with spots on it, I just kind of, you know, clean it myself. I, I'm just, I, I don't like making trouble. But I was, I, you know, I looked back at the kitchen, and I mean, it was like, they were in no hurry, and I was frustrated, and I got angry, and maybe as I get, I'm getting older, like my patience is running out, and I, I don't know what's happening, but I told Maribel, I said, I cannot wait to get home to get on Google and write a review. I am going to destroy this restaurant. So as we're sitting there, and it, the bill comes, and you know, I'm looking at her, and I'm like, I don't think I should give a tip, and she's like, you're not gonna give a tip, and I'm like, I don't know if I'm gonna give a tip, so I said, well, I'm just going to give her a little tip, and then I'm going to explain myself on the back of the receipt. And I was wrestling because I did not want to come across as unloving, especially as a pastor, right? Like, like this person like shows up in my church because someone invited them. They're like, that's the jerk who didn't tip me. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is what pastors go through. So I tipped, I gave a small tip, and I explained I would have tipped more, but this is what happened. So I got home and I got on Yelp and Google and I wrote, and I said, I've never, you know, never written reviews in my life. I said, but you know, this place is, you know, the pits, whatever. But I wanted to be loving. 
She deserved a bad review. The restaurant deserved a bad review, but I, I had anxiety over love, if I can put it that way. I had anxiety over not coming across as loving, and I had anxiety thinking to myself, how would God see this interaction with this person? When love is operative, it is the motivating force behind all relationships, but especially relationships with one another as believers in the family of God. And so notions of superiority disappear. I'm more important than you, I'm better than you, you're under me, you're less than me. Like, in the gospel, those things are supposed to disappear because they have no place in the gospel, in the family of God, they have no place. Reconciliation and restoration happens between hostile parties, especially in the church, because Christ, the bond of love, unites people. And so we're united to one another in a bond of love, unity, and fellowship, which means that if I offend you or you offend me, we are bound by the gospel. We are compelled by love to suffer long with one another. We're compelled to find a way to achieve reconciliation and restoration. We're compelled. And this is the basis of Paul's appeal to Philemon, reconciliation. And he says in verse 8, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, this is Paul to Philemon, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Now, when you're having a dispute with someone, you're hoping that your friend sides with you and not the other person, right? Philemon is at odds with his slave who's a runaway. He's wronged him in some way. And so it had to be shocking to find his good friend, the Apostle Paul, siding with Onesimus. Or at least maybe it felt that way. And this is what makes Christian fellowship tricky at times because we do offend one another. But as I said a minute ago, our bond in Christ compels us not to treat each other the way we would with outsiders, the way we would treat outsiders. I mean, you know, if a business deal goes wrong, you know, you're burned by a business partner, that relationship is toast. You may even sue, right? But a brother or sister in Christ obligate us to behave and respond differently to offenses, to reconcile for the sake of love. I can't reiterate that enough. For the sake of love, because love is the operative motivating factor in the hearts of believers because we've been loved by God. And it's really simple. We've been loved by God, we've been lavished by God with his grace, therefore we are obligated to reflect that back out towards others, especially other Christians. Especially other believers. It's not easy all the time. Sometimes it's very, very hard to do, but we're obligated by love, our calling as the family of God who have received love from God. Which means we should always be asking, especially towards believers, is this the loving thing to do? 
Does this action communicate love? Would God be proud of the way I'm treating this person? We can't really hope to demonstrate love towards outsiders if we're not doing it towards one another, you know, in our Christian community, right? I mean, how can we? How can we demonstrate love towards people who we have no bond and connection with if we are not able to do it with each other? Philemon is a loving brother, according to Paul, but he needs to exhibit love towards Onesimus now, who up until this point has been a slave. This is the complexity of the human heart. We can love God and each other in theory, but have no clue what reconciliation really looks like. But that is what Christianity is all about, being reconciled to God and reconciled to one another. It can be hard to mortify our pride, especially when we feel like we're in the right, and I'm guilty. When I feel my cause is just and right, I can become hard because I'm waiting for that other person to apologize. I'm waiting for that other person to eat humble pie. I'm waiting for that other person to acknowledge their wrong against me. But love mortifies pride. It has to, but it's not easy to do. It's easier sometimes to stay mad than to engage in cruciform love, love shaped by the cross. That's what the word cruciform means. Love that is shaped by the cross, what Jesus did on the cross for us. Love that sacrifices and is open to personal loss for others. Because when your cause is right and you sort of meet someone in the middle, you're giving up a claim to be angry. You're sort of giving up that claim you have to rightfully be upset when you feel your cause is just, but to reconcile means you're, letting, you're gonna let go of that. You have to lose something. You have to let go of that claim to you're in the right, you know? And love does that. Love requires that, but it's not always easy to do. Paul says, for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus. Paul is a Christian, Philemon is a Christian, and now Onesimus, Philemon's slave, is a Christian. And Paul says in verse 11, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. Now why is it in parentheses? It's in parentheses in the Bible because there's sort of a word play going on. Michael Gorman in his marvelous book on the Apostle Paul points out the creative word play by saying, he says the text says, Onesimus was once a creston, useless to Philemon, but is now eucreston, useful to him and Paul. The two Greek words Paul uses also sound very much like forms of the word Christos, Christ. The word akreston would suggest without Christ, while the word eucreston would suggest good in Christ. The pair of words drawing a parallel between the man's usefulness and his relationship to Christ. In other words, Paul is saying, formerly he was your slave and you thought him useful to you as a servant, but I'm saying actually he wasn't useful to you because he wasn't a brother. But now that he's converted, 
Now he's really useful to you as a brother in Christ, not just to you, but to me also. He's truly beneficial. And this is, the, this is sort of like the amazing thing that Jesus does for people in this world who otherwise have no connection to one another. In fact, like most of us here today, if it wasn't for like our Christian faith, we probably would not be friends. That's not because you all are not worthy of being friends with one another, but what has brought us together is Christ. And that's what the bond of Christian unity does. It brings people from different backgrounds, from different educations, different races and ethnicities, socio-demographic circumstances, and it brings them together. We probably wouldn't even be crossing paths or otherwise have anything in much in common. And even after we've met each other and gotten to know each other, we still may struggle to maintain the bond of friendship because we still might not have, other than our common interest in God, much to talk about. But we pursue one another in love because we realize that this other person in Christ is part of the family of God and require my kindness, my friendliness, my love, my concern, my prayers. It really goes against everything else our world tells us about what it means to be human because, you know, by nature, human beings are tribalistic. We want to be with people who look like us, act like us, who share lots of things in common, and it's hard to sort of breach beyond those comfort zones for us, but that's what the gospel calls us to. It's not always easy, it's not always comfortable, but that's what the gospel calls us to. And Onesimus has become so useful that Paul wants Philemon to see him in a new light. Paul wants to keep him for ministry. You can imagine that Onesimus, before he became a Christian, his life was defined by his slavery, but since hearing the gospel, has found his true calling he appears to have had real gifts. In fact, Paul says to Philemon that Onesimus has become so useful that I, I, I need him for the work of ministry. And he could have helped Paul in a number of ways, including evangelism and teaching and preaching and ministering, or simply caring for the apostles' needs, which is more likely if Onesimus himself was not in jail, but was visiting Paul regularly because he was in a place where Paul was in prison and he was visiting the local believers and sort of doing Paul's bidding, and Paul recognized in Onesimus a calling to ministry. That might have been hard for people in the first century who were free to think God would call someone to ministry leadership who's a slave. Yeah. God is no respecter of persons. God doesn't care about that slavery status. He calls people from all sorts of backgrounds. And it's a cliche that most of you have heard, but it is a true cliche that God doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called. Does that make sense? God calls people from different backgrounds with no qualifications, and God qualifies them by definition of the calling. He doesn't seek out people who, in and of themselves, have all of these sort of uh, qualifications and his wonderful pedigree and resume. God gets a hold of people, often people whose society regards as nothing, 
and makes them something for the kingdom and the gospel. And in this way, God enjoys shaming the wisdom of this world with the wisdom of God, because the wisdom of God doesn't operate like the wisdom of the world. Wisdom of the world exalts people who have, you know, a lot to boast about. And this is why Paul, if you read Paul's letters, one of the things he says is, all of the things that were gain, my reputation, my Jewish pedigree, I was a Pharisee of the tribe of Benjamin, I kept the law perfect, spotless, without, without blame, and all of those things which were reasons for Paul to boast, he says, I count all of those things as loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, which means that whatever formerly he brought to the table and boasted about were worth nothing. Because everyone is equal before the cross. Everyone is the same before the cross because we're all sinners. He says, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. Scott McKnight says, we need to imagine our way into Philemon's household where this letter was read in the first century in a house church. People sitting, lounging, or standing as the letter is read. We need to think, too, that the house church is not limited to Philemon's family, but neighbors and fellow believers would have all gathered when the courier arrived with a letter from the great apostle Paul. You couldn't just forward a text message, right? A letter has come in on a piece of parchment, and the courier has arrived saying, this is a message from the apostle Paul. And everyone gathers, what does Paul say? You know, Paul had a reputation by that time already. Imagine, you know, the situation. Up until this point, no one knows the contents of the letter. Philemon has no idea he's about to be called out in front of everyone because that's what's happening, right? He's being called out by Paul. The first seven verses, he pours all these accolades on Philemon. He says, I've heard of your love and how you've refreshed the saints. Your reputation goes out. I'm so grateful for your partnership. He uses the word koinonia, which means fellowship and partnership. I'm so grateful for your partnership in the gospel, the love that you have given to people. And then he makes this big ask, this big appeal. But here's the deal. Even though this letter is addressed to Philemon, it's not private. Imagine somebody calling you out publicly, and it's the first time you've heard it. Philemon standing there, oh, the Apostle Paul, he probably feels very honored that the Apostle Paul has written a letter just to him, but in the ancient church, letters like that were meant to be read publicly. That's how they typically worked. And so he has no idea he's about to be called out All eyes are on Philemon, and the courier delivering the letter could have even possibly been Onesimus himself. I mean, just imagine how tense that room was. Philemon backed into a corner to make an on-the-spot decision, and everybody with their eyes on Philemon and then looking at Onesimus to see what's going to happen. You know, Philemon probably turned beet red, and Onesimus was probably sweating and writhing his hands in nervousness. And there's no way 
when Philemon hears this appeal that he could have done what we do today when we're asked to do things. You know, hmm, I'll pray on that. That likely did not happen, which just as a quick side note, you know, is like a way of saying, I don't really want to, but let me find a way to stall here for a little bit. But he couldn't have done that. He couldn't have said, I'll pray on that. There was an imperative that put him on the spot, and it was an imperative of love. And Paul says, I could command you, but I'd rather you do it out of love. Now, at that point, if you're Philemon and you're in front of a room full of people, there is no way you cannot not do this, right? Like, you have to do this. Paul says, love compels you to do this. He's not manipulating or coercing Philemon, but he's showing him what the commitment of love looks like and what it looks like to love one another. And this is Jesus's number one identifying marker for his people. He says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you what? Yeah. Jesus says, everyone will know you are my disciples by this one identifying marker if you love one another. Love requires Philemon to treat Onesimus not merely as a slave, but now as a brother. And he goes on, he says, for this is perhaps why he was parted from you for a while that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant. The Greek word doulos is slave, it's the same word. It's the translator's choice at times to translate it as slave, sometimes as bondservant, and you'll notice in modern English Bibles, it'll use different wor both words. But more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So the question, hopefully, that is looming over the text now for you is, does Paul actually expect Philemon to set Onesimus free? Well, listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7.20. Each one should remain in the situation he was in when he was called. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Sounds like easy for you to say, Paul. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although, listen, although, if you can gain your freedom, do so. What? For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's freedman. Conversely, he who was a free man when he was called is Christ's slave. What in the world is Paul saying? If you're a slave when you become a Christian, don't let it bother you. Just keep on being a slave. Oh, but at the same time, if you can become free, if you can get your freedom, like, go for it. What is he saying? Number one, I think the answer to the question I just asked, does Paul expect Philemon to set Onesimus free? The answer has to be yes. There is no way Philemon can ever see Onesimus the same way again. But Paul, in there were harsh penalties in the Roman world for harboring and abetting escaped slaves. He wants Philemon to do it of his own accord and to do it legally because a slave owner 
could write a bill of manumission. So manumission meant to set a slave free. So a slave owner could say, here's an official document, you know, just like today when you sign a car over to somebody, you sell a car, you have to sign some paperwork. There was a document or a certain writing that the slave owner could write and say, I set this person free. And Paul wants Philemon to do it of his own accord and to set Onesimus free. There's no way Philemon can ever see Onesimus the same way again. But Paul wants him to do it out of love. Whatever society thinks of Onesimus at this point is completely irrelevant. Because in the new humanity, everyone is equal before God. This was earth-shattering stuff for the first century. And this letter, even though it's tiny, it's just 25 verses, was really an explosive thing in how it redefined human relationships. Because in God's eyes, everyone is equal. God is no respecter of persons. And just as Paul and Philemon are partners, now Onesimus is to become a partner as well. The love of God challenges the status quo in our lives in every area of our deeply held assumptions about what it means to be human, what it means to interact with other people, what it means to love other people, what it means to forgive, and even what it means to be angry with people. The gospel redefines what it means to be human, and what it means to grow in Christian maturity means that our lives are constantly pulling like gravity towards this ideal of the love of God. And we fail at that. We do fail at that. It's one reason why we confess our sins early in the service, because we fail every week at it. None of us are or will be perfect at it until the Lord returns. But it is what the gospel calls us to. It says God's love in Christ challenges the status quo, that God's love in Christ rearranges hierarchies and relationships And God's love in Christ compels us to love one another for the sake of love. Let's pray. Father, thank you now for this second part of Philemon. We have not concluded or completed the story yet, but we now see the terms of Paul's appeal to Philemon to recognize his slave Onesimus in completely different terms because the gospel reorients our hearts around love as the operative motivating factor in all we do. Father, help us to love one another. Help us not to look down the end of our noses at those who are less fortunate than us, who have less than us, who don't make as much money as us, who are not educated as much as we are. Whatever the case may be, help us, O God, to see people the way you see them. And let the Spirit energize us and equip us and enable us to overcome our deeply held biases, assumptions, prejudices, whatever they may be, and crucify our own sense of superiority, that we might see ourselves as slaves in service to Christ. Amen.